0: Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. We're arrived at the last section of the last chapter of this book, and I will now be preaching the last sermon in this year-long exposition of the book of Genesis. Interestingly, there's a telling contrast between the first five words in the book of Genesis that we looked at 12 months ago and the last five words of the book of Genesis we're going to look at today look at them on the screen genesis 1:1 the first five words of this book are in the beginning god created the last five words of this book are in a coffin in egypt what a contrast the book begins with god bringing forth life in all of its realms he speaks forth plant life trees animals, sea creatures, birds in the sky, and the apex of his creation, human beings. But the book ends with a coffin. It ends with death. It's a stark reminder of the warning God gave to those first humans. If you disobey the word, you shall surely die, which tells us this truth. God's word is true, and God is true to his word. But as we shall see, even this death in the concluding verse of this book is is really an example of great hope we have in God. It's an example of incredible confidence in the promises of God. You see, this book of Genesis really stands apart from the rest of the Old Testament and really the rest of the Bible. It records the beginnings, not only the beginnings of the universe and the beginnings of of the human race, but it records the beginnings of the covenant line of God. It records the beginnings of the nation of Israel and how they came to be. But Genesis also records for us the beginning, intimations, shadows, types, and prefigurements of a promised deliverer who would rescue his people from their sins. Over the last 12 weeks, specifically, we've looked at Joseph and his life from a pit to a palace. Twelve weeks ago, as we started this zoom in on the patriarch Joseph, I told you there are five words that are the theme of Joseph's life, and it's really the title of my message this morning. We find those five words here in this section. God meant it for good. God meant it for good. That is the theme over Joseph's life, and friends, that's the theme over our lives. God meant it for good. There may have been instances in your life as a Christian where you have had gospel conversations with people, where you've tried to talk to them about the Lord, and they'll raise up objections to even the existence of God or the believability of the Bible. Often those objections, at least in my experience, are not so much intellectual objections that have been researched, but they're more personal objections. What do I mean by that? This person may have experienced some tragedy, some hardship, some difficulty, and they'll say, how could I believe in a God that would allow this hardship, this tragedy, to occur in my life? Why didn't he stop bad things happening to me? Well, the life of Joseph tackles all those objections. Because what we've seen in Joseph's life again and again and again is often when things look like they're really going wrong, often when things look like it couldn't get any worse, that's when God is up to something big. And what a great word for 2020, right? (laughs) When things couldn't look any worse, friends, God is up to something big. God is about to do something great. Now, as we approach this last section of this last chapter, what we'll see is, is what's been described as some, as this is really the postscript to the book of Genesis, the P.S. of the opening book of the Bible. God is going to, in this last section, bring up some things that we're going to discover, and things we've been considering over the last 25 chapters. He's going to tie up some loose ends as we've been tracing the covenant family, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, the good, the bad. Let's look in our Bibles in Genesis chapter 50. We'll read verse 15 through the end of the Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little one. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Mashir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph Made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, in this final message in Genesis, in this final message in our study on the life of Joseph, as we consider this theme, God meant it for good. There are really three things in particular from this text that I want to see that really undergird this truth. God meant it for good. Here's the first one. Number one, we see from these brothers this irrational fear. Irrational fear. Now, some of you may have known families, it may even be your family, that they often hide differences and difficulties and hostilities while the patriarch or the matriarch of the family is still alive. Maybe it's out of a fear of what dad will do or out of a concern of what mom will think. But as soon as the patriarch or the matriarch dies, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose among the family, right? This sense of what's keeping them together and these things that were kind of hidden and under the surface, they all come out, they disintegrate once the patriarch or the matriarch is gone. And this seems to be what's happening here with Joseph's family. Jacob, their father, has died, and immediately their brothers begin to suppose, okay, the only reason Joseph's been good to us, the only reason we've received good from Joseph and not bad is because, well, dad was kind of that protective measure between us and Joseph. Now that he's gone, oh no, it's about to get bad. This layer of protection has gone with him. So they concoct a story. Most scholars believe that's exactly what they did because there's no inference and no record anywhere that Jacob had actually given this command to the sons to deliver this message to Joseph. They concoct this story. Dad told us to tell you, Joseph, that you're supposed to forgive us. Dad told us to tell you, Joseph, you're supposed to keep doing good to us, and even though, yeah, we did a bunch of bad stuff for you, you you need to forgive forgive us. What's motivating this? What's motivating this story? Friends, they're still riddled with guilt over their sin because of the heinous acts they did to their brother. Now, in one hand, although this deception and manipulation or looking to manipulate their brother, this concocted story is misguided, part of their message is actually quite admirable. You see, because it's in this message to Joseph that for the very first time, they actually fully come clean about the depth of their sin. It's the first time they actually admit their own personal guilt for what they did to Joseph. In fact, look again at verse 17. They confess: please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. There are three distinct descriptive Hebrew words that they use in this message to their brother. Transgression, it's translated in English. Sin and evil. Now, these three words are particularly striking. When we compare and contrast them to the way, well that modern people respond when they get caught in some type of a public faux pas, how do they respond? You won't hear them use words like "transgression," "sin," "evil," "wickedness." What do they say? I had a lapse in judgment. It was just a, a decision that was an error. Does't matter? If it's a politician, a TV preacher, or a president. He gets caught in wickedness. They doesn't call it wicked. They don't fully come clean with the depth of their sin. It happened just two months ago. You may remember this story of a well-known legal analyst on a cable news network who on a video Zoom call exposed himself to his colleagues. Evil. He was suspended by the news network and the magazine he wrote for. But notice his public statement after it came out. I made an embarrassingly stupid mistake believing I was off camera. Are you kidding me? It was evil. It's wicked. It was sin. So even though these brothers are coming through this cloak of deception, our father told us to tell you, at least we can give them this. They're being forthright about their sin. They're being honest about their Guilt. And now for years, this guilt has weighed on them for 17 years. And so they come clean, motivated by fear, to their brother Joseph. But those fears were really irrational. They weren't based on their experience. For 17 years, they've experienced the grace of their brother Joseph. They've experienced the protection and the prosperity of their brother Joseph. So in response to their message, what does Joseph do? He weeps. But we've seen Joseph weep throughout our study of his life. Why is he weeping here? I think he's weeping because he knows even though he's expressed forgiveness and care for his brothers, they still don't trust him. Isn't that true in relationships we have? Reconciliation cannot be complete until trust has been reestablished. That's how reconciliation happens, and so there's still some work to be done in order for there to be full and complete restoration between these brothers, which brings us to the second thing I want us to see from this passage and where we'll spend the bulk of our time. From the brothers, they had this irrational fear, but from Joseph, we see his informed forgiveness. What Joseph does in verses 19 through 21 is he communicates his complete and total forgiveness to them, and he illustrates why and how he can forgive them. And in so doing, he's completing this work of reconciliation that the brothers were still not confident had been obtained. And in three verses, he makes three sentences, three statements. Derek Kidner, who wrote a brief commentary on the book of Genesis that has been my constant companion over the last 12 months, notice what he said about these three sentences spoken by Joseph. He said this, each sentence of his threefold reply Is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave, one, all the writing of one's wrongs to God. Two, to see his providence in man's malice. And three, to repay evil, not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. These are attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. Three things that we see he communicated here. He leaves all the writing of wrongs to God. Secondly, he trusts God's providence even in the midst of evil. And third, he repays evil with practical affection. This is likeness. This is living the Christ life. But beyond that, these things inform Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. They also enable us to live victoriously in this world, to live with a pervasive peace even in the midst of what is upheaval. And here's how I want us to think of these three sentences, these three statements. You'll see them on the outline if you have one. Number one, he doesn't sit in God's seat. Joseph said, I'm not sitting in God's seat. I'm not sitting in God's throne. That's the first sentence. It's actually a question. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph says, I can't sit in God's seat. That's reserved for him. I can't take his place. Now, when Joseph says this, I can't sit in the place of God. I can't take his seat. He's really tapping into a common theme in the Bible and also a common theme in the human race. You see, putting ourselves in the place of God is really the heart of all of humanity's problems. It's really the problem that we all deal with. How do we sit in God's seat? How do we assume God's position? I want to share with you from the Scripture a, a few ways. There are many. One... We do this by setting ourselves up as the supreme moral authority. Now, none of us would do that, right? This is something of what Joseph is saying here. Am I the moral authority? Am I the one that gets to determine what is right and what is wrong? But what's amazing is today the mantra, the proposition of our world is this. Only I get to determine what is right and what is wrong for me. No outside source or authority. You can't tell me that what I'm doing or what I'm saying or how I'm living is wrong. I'm the supreme authority of morality for me. What are they doing? Sitting in God's seat. And when the serpent slithered up beside Adam and Eve, it was this same thing. You remember that? God gave Adam and Eve in the perfection and innocence of the garden one command, one rule their Bible was so small, it would fit in a fortune cookie. All it was was, don't eat from that tree. Adam, if you, you can do anything else in the world you want to do. One command, one moral authority, don't eat from that tree. And what did the serpent say? You eat from that tree, you're going to be like God. Now, what was he saying in that? Was there some God juice in that fruit that if they eat it, they're going to magically and mystically? mysteriously be turned into gods no what he was saying is you get to decide what's right and wrong you get to be your own moral authority here eat the fruit sit in God's seat and again that's the mantra of society people sit in God's seat and they assume this moral position Jesus mentioned another way we sit in God's seat how one word worry worry In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, why are you anxious about what you're going to wear? Why are you worrying about the food that you eat? Don't you know God clothes the lilies of the field? He provides for the birds in the sky. How much more will he provide for you what you need? But you see, excessive worry occurs when we think that we're absolutely certain about what our needs actually are, And somehow we think, well, God's not really going to meet them the way we think they ought to be met. There's this nagging thought, God's not going to get it right. So we worry. We're anxious. And when we do, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. But here in the context of this passage, this is how we really put ourselves in the place of God, seeking our own vengeance, by nursing a grudge by holding unforgiveness in our hearts. You see, the brothers come and say, please forgive us. And Joseph says, of course I've forgiven you. Am I in the place of God? What's the implication? Friend, if you are nursing a grudge against a wrong suffered, if you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart because of something someone has done to you, no matter how vile, how wicked, how evil and painful that was, you're sitting in God's seat you're in effect saying I am the supreme being and I get to determine whether or not this person can be forgiven or not that's not your job in fact in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 and it's repeated in Romans 12 and Hebrews 10 in the New Testament God says very clearly vengeance is mine I will repay when God says vengeance is mine what is he saying get out of my seat (laughs) get out of my seat that's not your job. Right. Vengeance is mine. It's not your job to seek retribution on a wrong supper, suffered. That's my job. Mm. Only I can sit in judgment of others. And when we sit in God's seat, we're really going back to the very first sin. No, I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. Mm. I'm talking about Lucifer. Yeah. What was his sin? Created in beauty and perfection as a high archangel, he wanted to sit in God's seat. He wanted that glory. And here's what happens when we try to sit in God's seat in moral judgment, in, in executing our own vengeance of others. You can't execute vengeance on others and be, try to be God without becoming more like Satan. The more you try to be God, the less you'll be like God. How? How? When I harbor unforgiveness in my heart, when I seek to repay myself, evil starts to seep in. Bitterness, anger, malice, and even this one we sometimes forget about, self-pity. They settle into our souls when we keep unforgiveness in our hearts. He says, I'm not sitting in God's seat. Am I in the place of God? Here's the second thing that informed his forgiveness. He trusts in God's sovereignty. He trusts in God's sovereignty. We see that in the second sentence he communicates in verse 20. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph trusted in the sovereignty, the purposes, the providence of God, even in the midst of the evil acts that were accomplished against him. Let me ask you a question. How do you view your troubles? How do you interpret your hardships and trials and difficulties? Do you take God's perspective, or do you look from a human perspective? Here's the human perspective. You look at what's happening by experience, and you make determinations about God, his nature, or even the future based on those experiences. So it goes something like this. If life is going good, if you've got money in the bank, Your job is going well. Your children are behaving. You know what I hear people say often, and it's kind of spiritualized this way? Anytime they experience some kind of a blessing? Well, isn't God good? Right? Isn't God good? You ever heard that? You ever said that? You lose your job. Isn't God good? You get a cancer diagnosis. Well, isn't God good? Your son gets arrested. You just found out your spouse had an affair. Isn't God good? Yes, through all those. And so God is still good. And Joseph does not have this distorted, skewed view of life. He's actually quite honest. He's not this unrealistic optimist about the things that happen in life. He's a realist. He says, you meant evil against me. It was evil. He calls a spade a spade. But yet even though evil exists, God is still good. The Bible is not unrealistic about the evil that's in the world. The other day, I was flipping through radio stations, and I heard this old song by Ray Stevens. Everything is beautiful in its own way. Ray, you're an idiot. That is not true. There's lots of things in this life, in this world, that have no beauty, no redeeming quality. They're ugly and they're evil. You've probably heard this ridiculous statement. You know, deep down, everybody's basically good. Psh, you obviously don't know me. The Bible gives us an accurate view of the world. Just go read the book of Job sometime. We don't like reading Job because of its honesty and accuracy. His three knucklehead friends, what do they say? Here's the summary of their advice to Job. If you live a good life, you're going to experience good things. It's not true. They're the villains. They're the fools of the book of Job. The reason Joseph could forgive his brothers is because he had this fair-minded perspective. Yes, there's evil, but God is good. And God is still working out in his sovereignty, in his providence, for his purposes, the things he's going to accomplish. Now, you may not see for days, weeks, years. You may not even see in this life. We may not know until that final day how God took all this mixed-up mess of the ingredients of our sin and worked it all out for good. But he is. And so Joseph can forgive his brothers so deeply because he is absolutely certain of this fact. Listen, they could not sink God's plan. No matter what they did, no matter how sinful they were, they could not thwart God's purposes for the covenant people. Amen. I've told you before, my own family's sordid history. Now my mom and dad met at a military dance in South Georgia in 1958. They hooked up and my mom got knocked up. Was that sin? Yes. But did God bring good out of it? Yes. The least of which is Not me, the greatest of which is my three gorgeous grandchildren. I mean, just look at these right here, right? I mean, come on. (laughs) Did God bring good out of evil? Absolutely he did. Think about Joseph's own father, Jacob. Here is Jacob. He lied and he cheated and he stole and he manipulated. And his brother is going to seek revenge to kill him. Evil, 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 evil. He moves up north to Uncle Laban's land. He meets beautiful Rachel. He tells Uncle Laban, I want to marry Rachel. He says, Okay, you work for me for seven years, you can have Rachel as your wife. He works seven years, and on this honeymoon night at the honeymoon tent, Laban brings ugly Leah to the tent, unbeknownst to Jacob. Evil! Leah has six, half of Jacob's sons. One of those sons is Judah. Judah, in an attempt to usurp the authority of his father, in an attempt to overrule the family. He has sex with one of Jacob's concubines. concubines. Evil. But it is from the loins of Judah that the kings of Israel come. Like David, who we discussed a few minutes ago. David has adultery with Bathsheba. She ends up knocked up. So what does he do? He ultimately has her husband Uriah murdered. And David and Bathsheba are the great, 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 great grandparents of one Jesus of Nazareth. Can God bring good out of evil? Yes. Prince, that's just a microcosm yes. of the messed up, mixed up lineage of the Lord. Amen. And think about it at this time of Advent, of Christmas. Jesus, the pre-existent, eternal Son of God, could have chosen any family to enter into, and he chose that family. <laughs> Why? Why? because he brings great good out of evil. I mean, what about the most evil, vile, and perverse act ever perpetrated in the history of humanity? What is it? It's the perfect, innocent, kind, compassionate, loving son of God being brutally killed by lawless men. But if not for that evil act of lawless men, if not for the jealous Jews, if not for the betrayal of Judas, if not for the cowardice of Pilate, we would have no hope of salvation. In fact, the very first sermon of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost, as the apostle Peter stands up to preach, this is the point of his sermon. Look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 2. Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They were lawless, evil, wicked men who crucified Jesus, and they're fully guilty and culpable and will pay and be judged for their sin. But God planned, according to his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty, the salvation of many. Friends, what a resource for life this truth is. That God works things out for good, all the bad. It seems like there ought to be a verse that says that somewhere. Oh, there is. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, just the good things, just the pleasing things, all things work together for good for those who are called. How? According to his purpose. A few verses later, the apostle Paul writes, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? This is Joseph's perspective. He says, I'm not going to sit in God's seat. I'm going to trust in God's sovereignty and therefore he is a conduit of God's supply. God's loving affection. Look at verse 21. He says to his brothers, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is reflecting the very heart of God here in verse 21 by being a conduit of God's provision and God's affection. He's the vehicle of God's supply. He's loving his enemies, by meeting their needs. How can he do that? Well, he could do this third thing because he has a firm grasp on the first and the second thing. He knows I don't sit in God's seat. I trust in God's sovereignty, whatever comes. Therefore, I can be a vehicle of God's affection to other people. Now, you may be here and you may be saying, well, that was Joseph. I mean, Joseph is this towering Figure in the Bible, probably the most moral man in the entire book of Genesis in the 50 chapters we've been studying. That's him. I can't do that. No, you can't do that. You could do better than that. I found it interesting in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he points out John the Baptist. Notice what he says about John the Baptist. Jesus describes this last of the Old Testament prophets. He says, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Not Joseph, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not Moses. None of them. But then Look what he says, the next word from the Lord. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Anybody, friends, who understands the gospel of Jesus... Anybody who understands and has come to faith in Christ, repenting of their sins, and trusting in Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into glory, anyone who has done that has greater resource than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, John the Baptist. Why? Because you have full knowledge of the work of Christ, and you have the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit. So here's Joseph he says, I can forgive you because I'm not going to put myself in God's place. Here comes the greater Joseph Jesus, who didn't have to put himself in God's place. He didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, he puts himself in man's place and becomes the ultimate sacrifice that informs our forgiveness for others. Friends, these are powerful, life-changing truths that are communicated in this last section of the book of Genesis. So we see on the part of the brothers, there's this irrational fear. Then from Joseph, there is his informed forgiveness. But finally, in the last paragraph of the first book of the Bible, we see an example of immense faith. As I mentioned in my introduction, the book of Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning, God created, bringing forth life. The book of Genesis ends with a coffin, with death but it's the coffin of Joseph. Look again at the last verse of the book of Genesis. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, this is the first time this word that's translated coffin in our English Bibles is used in the entire Bible. First time it's used right here. Ahron is the Hebrew word, not that you need to know that. What's interesting to note is the next time this word aron is used in the Bible. It's in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. You fast forward to chapter 25. Look how it's translated, not as coffin. They shall make an ark, an aron of acacia wood. Verse 16 of chapter 25, and you shall put into the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. Exact same Hebrew word as Genesis chapter 50 that's translated coffin. In other words, it's, it's a box. <laughs> They're putting Joseph's bones in a box. And in in Exodus 25, it says they put the testimony of God in a box. What's the testimony of God? We find out in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So again, I remind you of the context of the book of Genesis, writing to the Hebrews who were rescued and delivered from 400 years of oppression. They're wandering in the wilderness, and here's Moses saying, hey, I know you guys have noticed we've been carrying around two boxes. Two boxes have been going before the children of Israel. One box, the Ark of the Covenant, covered in gold. It has the command of God, the law of God. What's this other box? It's the bones of Joseph. Two boxes go before the people of God as a testimony of his faithfulness. One of them is this coffin. What is he saying? What God is saying to them and what God is saying to us in the last five words of the book of Genesis is this, to be continued. I'm not done with you. There's more coming. There's a greater promise to be obtained. And Joseph is expressing immense faith in the last part of the book of Genesis. As he tells his sons, the last thing he tells them, guys, swear to me, Make an oath. You're going to take my bones, you're going to put them in a box, and you're not going to bury them here in Egypt. You're going to bury them in the promised land. He's not thinking about the material inheritance he's going to be leaving his children, although I'm sure it was great. Here's the prime minister of Egypt, second in command of the world's lone superpower. He's not thinking about the physical, material inheritance he's leaving his children. He's thinking about the spiritual inheritance he's leaving them. In fact, Joseph is mentioned in the New Testament in the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You remember what act of faith he's remembered for? <laughs> it's interesting what they don't mention in Hebrews 11 about Joseph's faith. They don't mention his faith in being able to trust God and in interpreting dreams. They don't mention his faith of being faithful and patient in prison. They don't mention his faith when he's, when he's pursued by Mrs. Potiphar. They don't mention his faith, how he... Acts wisely in administrating the affairs of Egypt and saving not only his family, but all the known world. What's the act of faith that Hebrews 11 commends Joseph for? Well, look at it. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. According to the New Testament, The most significant act of Joseph who we've been studying for these last 12 weeks is the fact that he said, put my bones in a box and bury them in Canaan. Not in Egypt. Think about it. Joseph, we read, was 110 years old when he died. He was brought to Egypt as a slave at the age of 17. 110 minus 17, carry the one. That's 93 years he lived in Egypt. All his possessions and belongings were in Egypt. His whole family was in Egypt. And he said, don't you dare bury me in Egypt. You bury me in the promised land. Of course, we know the typological realities that the promised land represents for us. We who are in the New Testament era, there's a better land. We are citizens of a greater country. We anticipate a glorious homeland where there is no more weeping, there's no more dying, there's no more pain. Yes, we are traveling through this world with all of its hardships and difficulties and and prosperities and blessings, but we have a longing for another land, a land beyond the stars, a land of pure delight where pleasures banish pain, a land of everlasting joy, unspeakable joy, beauty, and ultimately communion with Jesus. An inheritance that will never spoil. And I wonder, what inheritance are you speaking to your children about? you worried about the house you're going to leave them? The 401k that's going to be left when you go, the administration of your estate? Are you leaving an inheritance of faith? Remember the last, these five words, it's the theme. God meant it for good. This is the theme that emanates from Joseph's life again and again and again. But again, the clearest expression of this reality is Jesus. God meant it for good. You see, Jesus suffered more evil than Joseph ever thought about suffering. How so? Well, Joseph experienced the wickedness of ten brothers come upon him. The wickedness of Mrs. Potiphar in her lies about him. The wickedness of the forgetful cupbearer. What wickedness fell on Jesus? Yours? Mine? The wickedness of the whole world fell upon Christ. Great evil. God meant it for good. In fact, notice verse 21 last time. But God meant it for good. Why? Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Are you one of them? Are you one who is going to be kept alive? One who's going to be saved? If you don't know, you can know today. Trust in Jesus, the promised Son of God, the greater Joseph, who is taken in your place, your punishment for your sin. And, Christian, believer in Jesus, are you interpreting life through this lens? Are you putting on God's glasses? Yes, there's awful wickedness in the world. God's going to turn it for good. That leads to my last thought. This will change the way we live. When we consider the evil Jesus endured to provide the good of God's promises, we are motivated to live for him.